Hi listeners, Jason here. We unfortunately have to shut down the Psych Health and Safety podcast until January 18, in line with the government-imposed podcast industry shutdown. So I'm sad to say that this will be the last of our episodes for 2021. But don't worry, it's an absolute cracker. We will be back on January 18, 2022 with another amazing guest who is a heavyweight internationally in the health and safety profession. To tide you over during the break, Joelle and I have selected six of our favourite episodes from 2021 that we will replay on Tuesdays and Fridays during our three weeks off. It was very hard to choose as we had so many amazing guests in 2021, but each of these discussions were exceptional for various reasons. On behalf of Joelle, myself and the team at Flourish DX, we wish you a happy and safe Christmas and we look forward to bringing you many new guests on the Psych Health and Safety Podcast in 2022. Now, on to this episode. From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Van Shee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. Before I introduce our guest and topic for today, however, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joel Mitchell. How are you today, Joel? I rode a bike on the weekend. Yeah, congratulations. Um, the last time I did that, I was about 15 years old. So, um, and it is, it is just like riding a bike, as they say. Um, it was, um, so my, my, my son's recently upgraded to a sort of big kid's bike. So we thought I should get something so I can keep up with him instead of sort of just walking and then him having to wait for me every time he gets to an intersection. Um, but we were looking at um, electric bikes. So you still have to pedal, but you can sort of choose the power and it helps you a little bit um, since it's been so very long since I've ridden a bike. Um, but the uh, the person at the shop had the power on, I think, the medium or high setting when I first started out. So I was very, very wobbly. Um, and my husband was a, bit, a little bit alarmed that I was going to come to some harm. So then she came and took, sort of took the power off to start with and then it was fine. Yeah, yeah, and then then I could sort of once I was up and going adjust the power and that sort of thing. Um, so, yes, that was a, an interesting experience being an adult and tr- sort of trying to remember how to ride a bike. But the muscle memory does kick in pretty quickly. So uh, I like the big claim you made yesterday, Jason. I've got a new bike. I'm going to ride into to work. That um, is a gross misrepresentation of you, how I and said And then you that. said it's an electric bike. <laughs> I'm like, well. Are you going to be riding No, it that's not how that conversation <laughs> went at all. I said, I'm getting a bike so that I can go riding with my son. Um, it's an electric bike. And you said, is that so that you can keep up with him? And I said, no, it's so that I can also potentially ride to work. <laughs> so let's just be clear about how that conversation actually went. Yeah, or you could just drive your car because it's probably the same amount of exercise, right? Because it's no, it's not. You have you have to pedal. You can't just. It's not like a a low powered motorbike. Like you actually have to pedal for the motor to start working. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the idea is that I would actually cycle. I wouldn't just coast along, but it's so that I'm not, you know, completely exhausted and then unable to work for the day. Okay. Well, well, well I am going to be very surprised if I see you rock up in your Lycra after your bike ride to work in the morning. 
All right. You heard it here, <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Maybe on a future podcast in 2025, we hear about the time that Joelle <laughs> rode the bike. <laughs> to work. Well, it's like it's only eight kilometres and it's mostly flat, so it's not actually that. Yeah, I'm not hearing any excuses here. Like, that, That's we'll what see. I'm saying. Tune in, I'm, listeners. I'm not, I'm not offering you any excuses. <laughs> I'm saying it's my intention. We will find out. We will, and I'll rub Jason's face in it right here on this podcast. Purely, uh, if, if for no other reason than that you've publicly called me out, I'm absolutely going to ride that bike to work. Yeah, it's motivational, right? I didn't need you to motivate <laughs> me, Jason. Well, I think you do. No. I don't think it's going to happen. Anyway, look. Unbelievable. It's not a cycling podcast. Unbelievable. <laughs> Let's introduce our guest because it's getting late for him. Uh, yeah. When he is. Okay. So he's Canadian-based, hence the time zone difference and why it's later at night for him. Um, international scientific consultant specialising in men's health, workplace stress, health and resilience, and human research ethics review. Over the last 30 years, he's worked across a wide variety of applied and basic research contexts, including military, first responder and healthcare. He's an adjunct pr professor uh, of psychology at Brock University and owner of the aptly named Donald McCreary Scientific Consulting. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Don McCreary. Thanks, everybody. It's great to, to be on the show. Yeah, great to have you. Um, I mean, we, Joel and I are on LinkedIn a lot, and uh, it appears that you may be challenging us for someone who's on LinkedIn quite a bit and really forwarding, I guess, the conversation regarding workplace mental health. Yeah, there's a lot of snake oil out there, which really bothers me. So uh, I'm a big, huge advocate of evidence-based uh, practice and evidence-based science. And so I try and, you know, dispel some of the myths that are out there whenever possible, you know, make sure that uh, how we're going forward is based on, on accurate evidence, you know, not a single study. I, you know, you know, I want to see some multiple studies and a systematic review before I, you know, I make any kind of claims. But uh, that kind of rankles some people, but I'm okay with that. And uh, for the most part, I think uh, the message is, is well liked. I get a lot of uh, people, more people saying, yay, keep it up, keep it coming, than say, Don, shut up. So, <laughs> yeah, as I keep saying to Joelle, you can't be Switzerland on a social media platform. Otherwise, you know, people don't engage and you don't really challenge people. So it's good to see people like yourself and Joelle who are willing to call out the BS when they see it. So, <laughs> Well, and and Don, I think um, if you know if anybody's rankled by um, by claims that are, are backed by evidence or or by um, challenging claims that have no evidence base, then they're probably the people who are trying to sell the snake oil in the first place. So um, they they deserve to be rankled. Indeed, yeah. It's either they're either you know financially involved or there are some ideological reasons. You know why mm -hmm. they. Uh, why they like the snake oil better than uh, the evidence. So you can't just, you can't fight with either really. You can just uh, keep on, uh, keep on trying to get the message out. Yep. That's it. So do you have any podcasts that you like to listen to? Ooh, Joelle, that's a tough one. You know, I tend to listen to podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I do so in a way just to disconnect from, you know, what I do during the day. So I do not listen to any podcasts that are work-related. Uh, they all tend to be things, something that I can just disconnect, you know, from uh, my day-to-day -day life with. So I'm happy to talk about maybe my top three, you know, just very briefly, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I think one of my first ones, you know, I'm a big, huge fan of science fiction. And uh, that's, I got through my PhD by reading science fiction novels. This is back in the, in the late, mid to late 80s. 
So uh, there's a podcast out there called Imaginary Worlds, which I just love. The host brings you know, together a lot of different topics in the area of uh, science fiction, but also delves into fantasy role-playing games, which I'm not a fan of, but, uh, but then challenges the reader to, uh, to really, or the listener actually, to embrace some of the, uh, the critical and the problematic elements of the science fiction. You know, and uh, and that's, that's been fascinating for me. So the other, another one I like is I love to uh, listen to podcasts about how the uh, built world influences human behavior. So I love the 99% Invisible podcast, you know, out of California. It's uh, kind of American centric, but they do try and expand out to a non-American audience every now and then. Uh, and it's, oh, they've had some amazing podcasts over the years. This, that's one I actually, as soon as it comes up on my feed, I listen to it right away. And I found a new one that's actually uh, a co-production between the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation called Stuff the British Stole. <laughs> uh, and it's in it's got two seasons and it's really fascinating you know you walk into a museum and you see a lot of stuff um and a lot of that stuff is stolen you know because of colonization and imperialism and so on and so forth so it's a fascinating overview in that so that's how I like to decompress when I'm out walking or hiking or going on a long drive yeah no, that's good um a lot of our guests do sort of focus on um, professional podcasts and then I like to probe a little bit further and say, well, what do you listen to for fun? So I'm glad that you uh, shared with us just what you like to listen to for fun because we... It's all fun for me. Yeah, Absolutely. That's... Yeah, that that one, uh, what was that, the 99%? Invisible. Invisible, Invisible yes. yeah. That sounds yes. interesting. Mm. Oh, that's that's been a favourite of mine for, oh, I, I, I want to say eight to ten years, but I may be misremembering, but it's, they've been around for a long time. Yeah. yeah, and they're a weekly podcast, whereas the new one, like the stuff the British stole, that's a, a series. So you get, get about six or seven episodes and they go on hiatus for a little bit while they create new stuff because a lot of travel involved. A lot mm. of, yeah. You know, whereas the other ones, they tend to be more either weekly or biweekly. Yeah, it's like revisionist history. It's not enough of those. No, definitely yeah. not. Oh, <laughs> I love revisionist history. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or the other one, Tim Harford's, you know. Um, Cautionary Tales. Cautionary Tales. I love yeah, that Yeah, that's one of my favourites as well. Yeah. Yes. Educational and entertaining. Mm. Mm. Yes. So let's, um, can you can you give us a bit of a summary of your professional career, Don? Oh, you know that uh, song by the Beatles, that phrase, a long and winding road? Yeah, or better yet, that graphic, yeah, where it's like, this is how people think I got, I went through my career straight line, when in reality, it's just all over the place. It's an so enormous, messy my, tangle of squiggles. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I hear you. Um, I did my PhD in the mid to late 80s in Canterbury, England, in the psychology of gender, hence the expertise in men's health. Uh, but after graduating and, you know, coming back to Canada and entering the workforce, um, gender wasn't really a popular topic. It's not something I could have gotten grant money for, so I couldn't be an academic. There weren't a lot of people in the non-academic world who were interested in gender, especially gender and health, which is what I was interested in. Um, so I kind of retooled myself into the area of what we called then stress and coping. So, you know, what is stress? You know, what is the negative uh, outcome of stress and how do we cope with it effectively? And eventually that evolved into uh, more of a, of a focus on workplace stress, health and well-being. So um, that started probably in the mid 90s. And I've been you know, working in that area ever since. And um, I've worked in provincial government, but I also spent uh, 15 years working for the Canadian Department of National Defense, uh, nominally 
you know, studying psychological resilience in military personnel and first responders. Um, but it ended up getting a lot broader, you know, than uh, than that focus as well. So yeah, it was a it was a fun it was a fun time, you know, working for national defense. But I left in 2016, and uh, I've been consulting, you know, ever since. And um, seems to have sort of, um, I guess, your where you're at now seems to have looped back into that um, the gender um, and health uh, stuff that you did at, at the very beginning of your career, which is nice. It is. Uh, I actually get a lot more consulting uh, with the workplace stress and health you know, element, but uh, I've done a lot of volunteer work uh, with the Movember Foundation over the past almost 10 years. And so I've been able to you know, weave in still that interest. That's, I'll always maintain my focus on men's health. Uh, and uh, I chaired a, a subcommittee of the board of directors called their Global Men's Health Advisory Committee you know, for a number of years. Uh, and um, in 2019, I wrote a report for them on, uh, you know, the, the effectiveness of um, mental health prevention and suicide prevention and early intervention, um, you know, programs in veterans and first responders, which I will talk about uh, later on. And um, yeah, so right now I'm actually helping the, uh, you know, some grantees that, uh, that came out of a, of a grant round as, that resulted from the, uh, the report I wrote. Uh, to try and maximize the gendered lens elements to their uh, to their program, so that way I'm able to combine both my expertise in in men's health and gender, but also workplace stress uh, and well-being. It's nice when a plan comes together. It's not too often I get to merge and blend my two interests, so mm. um, I'll take it when I can get it. That's for sure. Yeah, it must be um, incredibly rewarding to be able to to combine those things in that way. It is because I've had to keep them separate for a number of years. So for a number of years, the workplace mental health stuff was what I did during the day and the gender stuff was what I did evenings, weekends and holidays. But uh, now I get to uh, get to merge them, you know, a little bit more frequently, uh, you know, for what I do for a living. That's great. Mm. Yeah, well, we're recording this uh, episode in November um, and you know, this is a very busy month for Movember. So many people will know of Movember, the um, the international men's health charity. Um, I think they focused initially on prostate cancer, didn't they? But have really extended into um, all sorts of men's health issues, including mental health. Yes, I think they started off in prostate and testicular cancer. Um, and then I think it was around 2006, 2007 in Australia, they started expanding out to uh, to the mental health field and really started uh, expanding in that area in, in a lot more of their markets in 2012, which is how I got involved. Uh, they started pushing into Canada. They wanted to, um, to improve some workplace mental health initiatives you know, or create some or, you know, in Canada. And uh, they reached out to a group of us uh, in Canada who were interested in men's health more broadly. And, uh, and we've been, I've been working with them ever since. It's been fantastic, it's been very rewarding. Yeah, so they've obviously engaged you formally in, in some research. Um, what was the focus of that research, uh, first of all? Um, I think the, uh, the, the focus of the research we're talking about uh, is uh, the project I did for them. I, wrote a, I did a scoping review for them in 2019. Um, they came to me in 2019 and said, basically what they wanted to do was uh, they wanted to identify the most effective mental health prevention program that, uh, that uh, or programs actually that were used in the veteran and first responder space in, uh, in, uh, in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, Ireland, 
uh, and, um, and England. And uh, so what they did is they asked me to review the literature, do a scoping review, identify the best, uh, the most effective programs. And then what they were going to do was then, you know, uh, find some people to, uh, to roll those programs out so that more veterans and first responders actually had access to them. But what ended up happening was uh, my report showed that none of the programs were really effective. And uh, that you know, led them down a really different path. So what ended up happening, you know, as a result of my, uh, my, my scoping review was that they said, okay, well, if there's nothing out there works, we need to find which programs have the most promise and then maybe help people tweak them in a manner that does work and then evaluate them so that we can demonstrate how effective they really are before we roll them out uh, to these populations. So they don't wanna roll out something that's ineffective. And yeah. that process really has been underway you know, since that report. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I did read a article recently about Martin Seligman's um, uh, US uh, military uh, resilience program. Yeah. Um, and that was really bought into in a big way. I mean, to the tune of tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. uh, with little evidence up front about the effectiveness. No, it was all based on, uh, on, ide on ideas that came from his program, which um, I guess one could say they were evidence-based in that context. But once you take those ideas out of that context and put them into a completely different context, they no longer become evidence-based. They become evidence-informed. And you know, that's when you need to actually determine what the effectiveness of these, these ideas you've taken from you know, point A and you've applied them in context B, they still now need to be demonstrated to be effective in context B, but that was not done for quite a while. And when it was done, there really wasn't any, any measure of effectiveness, uh, sorry, any effectiveness. They tried to measure it, but they didn't find anything. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, right? Because I, I remember reading his book, Flourish, and he talks about this. And uh, he was assuming they would say, oh, yeah, let's start off with the pilot um, and research the effectiveness. So it wasn't Seligman's fault, I don't think. No. Uh, the, the military really just rushed and said, we want to deploy this at scale uh, without looking at, you know, researching whether it is effective beforehand. Well, and the Canadian Armed Forces did something really very similar, you know, back in... Uh, I think it was 2004 uh, when Canada started, you know, first went into Afghanistan. Um, you know, I got a call to be a part of uh, a Canadian Armed Forces Mental Health um, Advisory Commission. Their role was, or, you know, their role was really to oversee the development of mental health education training, you know, for those troops who were deploying overseas with the goal of preventing, you know, uh, mental health symptoms further on down the line. And uh, so our oversight committee, you know, we oversaw the development of a program called the Road to Mental Readiness. And ironically, I was on that committee as the evaluation consultant, but the program never got evaluated until mm. um, way after it was, uh, it says given to the Mental Health Commission of Canada to roll out to first responders across Canada. It was touted as an evidence-based program, but it wasn't evidence-based. It was only evidence-informed. Nobody had ever tested the, you know, the effectiveness of the program because everybody was so busy giving the program, there were no resources allocated to evaluating its effectiveness. And when the evaluations did start coming in, they were showing no effects whatsoever. 
And uh, what do you do at that point when you have so many people invested and you've spent hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars training people in a program that is not evidence-based, you know, it doesn't work, you know, it's evidence-informed at most. And, uh, you know, what do you do? You know? I think this is a really important point for our listeners is that, that this issue of generalizability, um, yep. you know, and this is really why you need, if, if you're evaluating programs and you're thinking about implementing some, something, um, you know, you really need somebody with a good level of social science literacy to be able to actually assess the, um, the papers that are, you know, that are there supporting or claiming to support the intervention and actually looking for evidence of generalizability to your particular context. And this is a, it's a really nuanced issue, but it's so critical because, you know, I've, I've seen it happen all the time where, you know, a particular organization will develop something bespoke for them and it works really, really well for them. And then, um, you know, a competing company will poach the, you know, the project lead who developed the whole thing and say, we want you to do that here. And they do exactly the same thing there and it completely fails, Yeah, you know, and it's because they haven't, they haven't considered context. They haven't considered what's different about us than our, than our competitor that we might need to tweak or, or whatever it might be. So I think, yeah, you do really need to understand what generalizability is and think yeah. about that very carefully when you're evaluating any intervention. I think and there's another problem inherent in at least the mental health prevention sphere. And that is that organizations will build something based on bias. They think that this will work. They have this intuition that this will work. So they build it and they implement it, but then they don't evaluate it. They don't assess whether or not it does what it says it's supposed to do. And there are so many projects or so many programs that I've heard about through interviewing and talking with subject matter experts in the first responder community that are out there, but have never been validated. Or if they have been validated, the validation results are behind a, you know, behind a wall that mm. I can't see, which suggests to me that they probably don't work um, if they're not being you know, made publicly available. Because I would say that if you create a program that works for your people, tell everybody about it so that they can try it and see whether it works on theirs. And if not, then we can find out why and we can advance the science and we can advance the, uh, you know, the application and the prevention of uh, poor mental health in those who are especially at high risk. But if you're, if you are building the programs and you're not releasing the evidence, then, you know, even if it doesn't work, especially if it doesn't work, that's helpful information. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's where the um the all trials campaign is really um showing a lot of promise. Um yeah. and I think it's such it's such an important um thing that needed to happen. I agree. Yeah. And part of the problem I think there is a lot of social scientists uh they they think of all trials as more of a clinical pharmaceutical, you know, tool. Mm. Um something very similar to that has been popping up in science, you know, in social science in occupational health psychology and other aspects of psychology, and that is registered reports, mm. where you send in an outline of what it is you're going to do, it gets peer reviewed, and then you go and do it. And then you, the journal is now obligated to publish your results, positive or negative. So your methodology gets critiqued right up front. And that's fantastic, because mm. oftentimes yeah. when we take a look at the systematic reviews of the effectiveness of these types of programs, 
when you look at the quality of the studies, they're very poor. So if you can, so what ends up happening is that these, uh, these pre-registered reports, they end up beefing up the methodology at the very beginning before they go out and actually do it, which can only have a positive impact. And well, then the and journal will publish negative or positive findings, which is, I yeah, think, and it's such a, just, it seems like such a better use of everybody's time mm. to, to peer review the proposed methodology first, rather than, yeah, after it's all after the whole thing's done and the money's spent to come in and say, well, this could have been better and this wasn't great. And yeah, we're not going to publish because we think your methodology was flawed. Well, there goes, you know, however many years of those researchers' lives and, and you know, all of the participants <laughs> and the funding and, you know, well, all of yeah. that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think that that, um, yeah, let, let's do some proactive peer review before the methodology even goes underway. I, I think, you know, I, I really want to see much more of that happening. And, uh, you know, that would be a great way, especially when you consider one of the barriers to going out and doing actual workplace mental health prevention research is getting the involvement of the organizations themselves. And you want to be able to maximize their time and the efficiency that which you interact with the organization. You want to minimize the burden on the organization in order to get good data. So if you can go in with a plan, say this is a, this is the project that's been pre-approved, we're good to go, and and then work with them to uh, to minimize the burden on their staff, then I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I think um, a point that was well made by I forget who it was now, one of our I think it was one of our other guests recently. Um, you know, every time you yeah, it was um, Kevin Teo, um, especially with mental health, every time you you do an intervention you're taking effort from, from the population who are potentially already under stress. So you're actually adding to their stress, you're adding to their load. Um, so you actually, from an ethical perspective, need to think about, is this intervention actually worth the effort that it's going to require of, of the participants in terms of exactly. the benefit that it's likely to deliver? But I, I think we also need to think about evaluation as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's great doing an intervention, but if people have to complete an hour's worth of surveys or <laughs> whatever, is well, it? And yeah. And there lies the um, the, the real the, the interesting conundrum that we face, and that is that for some of the measures, like if we want to assess, if it, let's use uh, depression and anxiety as an example, we have short valid measures of depression and anxiety. But what happens if we want to measure job satisfaction? A simple question like how satisfied are you with your job doesn't really get at it. You actually want to be able to measure job satisfaction in a number of different aspects of the job and be able to pool them all together. And sometimes in order to do that, to get a valid, broad view of satisfaction with, the, with one's job or engagement with one's job, then you need a larger measure to measure it reliably and valid, you know, in a valid way. And, but, and so by the time you end up having, if you've got an intervention that has multiple outcomes, you know, associated with it, then you have these multiple tools and they're necessary, but they add up over time. And you're right. So how do you balance out the, the wanting to have the, give them have the most impact, the most broad impact for your intervention, but then minimize the, um, you know, the evaluation burden, you know, on the participant. So sometimes you have to go in and say, well, we're going to try for less up front because we don't mm. want to overburden the participants and we'll, we'll add on to it later on. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, uh, this comes up in, in burnout research I've seen recently as well. Like, you know, uh, often when you're looking at measuring burnout, um, people go, well, we're going to reduce the load on people and we're just going to look at the emotional exhaustion component. 
Yeah. But then <laughs> are, are we actually then covering what burnout is? And so we're not no. really looking at the reduced self-efficacy and the um, uh, cynicism that is associated no. with burnout. I just gave a uh, webinar uh, last week on burnout for the Canadian Institute for uh, Public Safety Research and Treatment. And uh, I thought one of the biggest pushbacks I was going to get when I said burnout isn't a diagnosable disorder, it's a set of symptoms about a, what, I would, what I would really call a toxic workplace. And um, because burnout is really all about the exhaustion, cynicism, and lack of professional lack of efficacy elements. And I thought I was going to get pushback because so many people, when they think of burnout, they just think of that exhaustion element. But I didn't get any, you know, and it was uh, it was really fantastic to see people understanding that burnout is much broader than it really is. Mm. Well, uh, that was kind of a tangent, a really we good did. tangent. We, we did. I, <laughs> I took us on a side quest. <laughs> hey, I'm happy to go on a tangent, you know. So. Yeah. Oh. All my conversations are tangents. It's, it's so. nice to be able to um, have a little bit of a nerd out about research yeah. sometimes, isn't it? Oh. Yeah. Well, I wanted to bring up the whole Carol Dweck thing, but we probably don't have time for it, like the generalizability um, yeah. and whatnot. So. Oh, yeah. I can talk for hours on generalizability. Don't, don't get me going on fidelity. Yeah. <laughs> program, program fidelity yes okay but you know what we're actually on our first point on the agenda we are, and yeah. uh, we're talking about the movember research which looked at the effectiveness of workplace mental health interventions and basically you identified that there you know wasn't really good um, evidence to support any of the sure. interventions that are available um, so what conclusions were you able to draw from from that research well the, the report I put together, actually, um, it started off talking about psychological safety in the workplace and, you know, the advent of, the st of standards. This was done pre-ISO. So, um, you, know, you know, but that, I, just, I wanted to use that to set the stage to say, hey, look, you know, it's important to have psychological standards for, or standards for psychological safety in the workplace. Uh, but then I did uh, an overview of the effectiveness of um, programs to prevent uh, mental health or Ill, mental ill health in the general workforce before getting into veterans and first responders. And I did that because it was important to have a comparison group. If you want to know what's going on in veterans and first responders, you have to know what's going on in the general workforce as well. So let me talk, if you don't mind, I'll talk a little bit yeah. about that first before I get into uh, sort of the crux of uh, the main purpose behind the report. So there have been a few systematic reviews and meta-analysis, and you'll find I'm a big proponent of systematic reviews and meta-analysis. Um, single studies really don't tell you anything, even if it's an RCT, it doesn't really tell you anything. It tells you, hey, we've got an idea that this is how things might work. A couple more studies after that gives you an idea of a trend. You really need to have several studies in multiple different contexts in order to determine whether or not something works and it's generalizable and so on and so forth. So there have been a few meta-analyses that are out there, systematic reviews that have been looking at the effectiveness of general workplace intervention uh, programs. And they basically showed if there were any effects, they were small, and those small effects disappeared after three months. So, you know, in other words, what you end up getting is a, is a quick bump right off the bat, but uh, any all the effects really kind of disappear very quickly. So uh, there was, some of these meta-analyses, they actually looked at different types of programming. And what they find is that one-on-one -on -one training is better than, you know, uh, sort of the death by PowerPoint, train the trainer types of models, et cetera, et cetera. So the one-on-one -on -one kind of training is the most effective, and, uh, but it's not very cost-effective. So it gives you the biggest effects, you know, in terms of preventing mental health, uh, poor mental health down the line, 
but it's very, very expensive. And the other thing you found is that a lot of these mental health prevention programs are really all about skills building. So they want to teach you about breathing. They want to teach you about the smart you know, way of, uh, you know, of reading you know, the system. They want to, uh, you know, they're going to give you coping strategies and skills. But what they do is they don't actually give you any supervision or time to learn them. They actually just, they talk about them. They maybe give you one or two chances to try them. It's death by PowerPoint. So then they move on to the next thing. So they give you two minutes. And what these systematic reviews have found is that programs that actually give supervision to skills development actually work better. But you know, programs that don't give you any supervision don't really work at all. And so, you know, unfortunately, the vast majority of programs, they don't give any supervision or very minimal supervision mm. uh, to skills. Um, and the other thing is that skills atrophy over time. So you, you know, Unfortunately, what ends up happening is some organizations, you know, when they do this mental health prevention training, you know, they, uh, they, they're doing it as a tick box episode, you know, type of thing. They come in and they say, oh yeah, no, we're going to do it. You're going to get it once and you're now covered. But think of the medical focused, you know, first aid training. That's only good for two years. And what the research shows there is that if, unless you use the skills on a regular basis, you start losing your skills after three months. After six months, yeah, you're 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 not you're kind of useless, but uh, but you can probably still get something done. But after two years, you know, you definitely need you know to be recertified. Well, you know, what we do know is that you know these skills atrophy over time, so they they maybe only last three months. So we have to find ways of building up you know and maintaining that you know um, the effects over time, and then we have to build in some kind of booster, you know, if you will, and so. That's kind of you know what we found or what I found anyway you know in um, you know in sort of the general you know literature, but the other thing I found is that when evaluation happened, it typically used a very weak or poor method to uh, to assess the outcome. So a lot of times it used either you know a uh, a very simple pre post design, not often a pre post post. There may not have been a control group. Just uh, we're going to look at the changes in this one group over time with no control group. Um, or sometimes what it does, it just uses purely cross-sectional you know, types of, of comparison. We're going to compare, we're going to give this group at this site, this uh, intervention, but we're not going to give it to that group over there, but it's not randomized. Mm. You know, it's just like different site A versus site B. Um, so what we end up finding is that studies that use weak types of evaluation methods like, you know, not a really good RCT, actually find elevated significance in elevated effect sizes in their uh, program evaluation compared to an RCT or a good quality RCT. So that's what, so they, they come out thinking or looking better, but they're really, that uh, looking better is really just a function of their poor uh, methodology. Mm. And I think uh, I just want to sort of, you know, say I'm kind of negative here about, uh, you know, saying all programs, all programs, but there was one program that is looking fairly decent, but we need to improve the, uh, the, the quality of the research on it. And that's mindfulness meditation. So the evidence for mindfulness meditation as a, uh, as a workplace mental health prevention type of program is pretty good. Uh, but again, how much of the pretty good is a function of the poor methodology? and how much of it is a function of the program itself. We don't quite know that yet, but uh, 
if I'm going to talk to anybody, if I'm going to recommend any type of program based on the current evidence, I'm going to recommend mindfulness. Yeah, we, we've actually just done a uh, recent review of mindfulness meditation um, uh, led by Dr. Alicia Pappas in our team. Um, and there's some really wishy-washy stuff out there. It's hard yeah. to even call it mindfulness. So when we say mindfulness, there's a, a vast array of quality, I guess, when you're talking yes. about that. And one of the big problems is whenever you start taking something like mindfulness, which is, you know, in essence, it's a, it is a it is sort of a manualized prevention program in the sense that there's a certain way you're supposed to teach it mm. and the way you go. But what ends up happening is workplaces don't want to, uh, the first thing they ask is, can you cut down the time involvement? So with mindfulness, the first thing they teach you is a 45 minute body scan, which you're supposed to do daily, or at least a few times a week before the next you know type of session. But people in the workplace don't want to spend 45 minutes a day or 45 minutes, two, three, four times a week on that. They want to cut, they want to cut down. And so what, uh, what people end up finding is there's a push to water down the quality of the intervention. And that may lead to some of the, the wishy-washy, uh, you know, and the inability to compare across programs because, mm. you know, what is, how, how watered down was your program versus, versus the other program? Yeah. Now there's, um, yeah, a lot to be said about fidelity. We're not going to get on that topic. Otherwise, <laughs> we'll really get you going. But um, yes, no, it, it does really need to be content that's developed by people who actually understand the techniques around mindfulness and not just giving you a relaxing script to meditate to. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think one of the key elements there is sometimes what they'll do is they'll teach you, you know, maybe a, uh, in a workplace setting, they'll teach you something, but you know, they won't actually work with you to build the skill, to build the, the way you do in a, in a, you know, in a, in a regular meeting, you know, a mindfulness training course, you know, you end up, you know, work, you know, the instructor will end up working with you to reinforce the skill that you're, you know, you're being trained in, you know, over time. Um, and that doesn't necessarily, you know, um, you know, happen in a workplace setting as much. Mm. And I guess the, the time to actually implement that during your work day as well. You know, can you, am I allowed to book out half an hour in my calendar and yeah. is there a quiet room that I can also book out and go and, and do my half hour meditation during my work day? Or is that something that I'm expected to do in my own time? Yeah. Can I use that mindfulness pod? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yep. And then, then you always get, because it's a workplace setting and somebody else is paying for it and if you're doing it during work time, you don't necessarily get the same level of investment from, uh, from a student. Uh, to give you an example, uh, I once took uh, a mindfulness uh, training course with my uh, previous employer. And, um, you know, it was the standard, you know, mindfulness, you know, course with the 45 minute, you know, uh, body scan. And the person sitting next to me didn't do it because they felt their time was more important doing research you know, than it was taking care of themselves. So you have to have that buy-in, you know, from the individual. And oftentimes, you know, when you end up uh, doing something in the workplace, there's not the same level of motivation, you know, to, uh, to do it. Sometimes it just may be something that they may, you know, be want to be seen doing, you know, by their supervisor to show that they're quote unquote, managing their mental health. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it is, uh, motivation is, is a key factor self-selection into the program you know uh, could be a key issue as well 
Yeah, interestingly, we had um, Dr. Georgie Tomer on on recently, and and she was talking about burnout prevention. And uh, what she covers is very much work design, so dealing with, I guess, the root cause of work related stress, but also supplementing that with mindfulness meditation as well. Yeah. So, mm. yeah, it yeah. seems to be, um, yeah, we, we often talk about that shared responsibility for workplace mental health. So, if we can teach individual skills yeah. as well as improve the working conditions, then we're mm-hmm. much better place to uh, improve mental yeah. health outcomes. Now, I, I want to say that I'm a big fan of mindfulness. Uh, I took a stress management course back in 2004, 2005. Um, and I don't want to be over dramatic here, but I, I think it saved my life. Uh, I did it every day. I, took, I did the uh, breathing or the, uh, the visualization exercises. I did one of them every day for seven years. And, uh, and I think it really did a wonderful thing. And then when I fell off the wagon, I could actually feel the stress coming back in my body and I haven't been able to get back on the, uh, the meditation, you know, wagon since. So, uh, I wish I could, but, uh, I found other ways to manage my mental health. Uh, you know, hence my love of hiking. Yep. Yeah. That's a, that's a great way to do it. Mm. Mm. And that's, I suppose, you know, there's passive mindfulness and there's active mindfulness. And I think, you know, a lot of those things like hiking, um, or, you know, my husband, um, although we don't live in an area where there's snow, um, he does like to go on uh, snowboarding holidays and he finds that that's a really good way of, because yeah. you're so focused on what your body is doing in the moment, you know, yeah. so you're not, yeah, I guess it's it's a form of mindfulness, but it's a um, active rather than passive yeah. mindfulness. Yeah. And there actually is a lot of research out there showing that uh, being out, you know, and, and walking in nature mm. is actually, you know, uh, very stress reducing. Uh, I don't know how, what the, I don't know what the quality of that evidence is. And I don't know how long the effects last, but, uh, but I have, but there are enough studies for at least uh, one or two systematic reviews, you know, in the area. So, uh, you know, there, you know, I was hiking a trail a couple of weeks ago uh, that was put together by some local bikers, uh, you know, mountain biking you know, community. And the trail was called therapy. Mm-hmm. And I thought it really got the reason I hike. So uh, that was good. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Dr. Stephen Aladi from Kansas University. I'm not sure if you've seen his um, TLC program, the Therapeutic Lifestyle Change um, for Depression. He's got six mm. different elements, and one of them is yeah, getting out to nature. And he talks about yeah. the evidence base behind you know getting out to nature and the impacts that it has on our mood. So, yeah, I think um, yeah, there's there's so much that uh, that really needs to to kind of just be go forward in the workplace and. Uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I, I kind of lost my train of thought there. So yeah, no, I I'm think happy it's, to have you lead me on this. Oh, uh, you know, it's uh, up to Joelle. I think we're still t- talking about the November research. Yeah. yeah. So, you, so you did the general, um, right. sort of the general population, and then you compared that to the first responders the, and veterans. Exactly. Exactly. So. What I found was that within the, the, the first responder community and the veteran community, uh, there really weren't a lot of uh, there really weren't a lot of studies, you know, um, where they implemented, uh, you know, mental health reduction or prevention programs, you know, within those communities. So um, there were one or two individual studies within the first responder community, and they really didn't find a lot, you know, um, that was consistent. And there uh, were a few studies that were out there in the uh, in the veteran space as well, but again, not a lot out there. So there really is a lot of evidence lacking in terms of what works in terms of prevention, you know, in the veteran and first responder space. But there um, there are a couple of really interesting things that I you know that I did notice, and uh, one was that 
within the veteran space, um, there's a function, sometimes ad adaptation to life after service can be more problematic for some veterans than others. So what the research is suggesting is that those who leave service because of medical conditions tend to have a rougher transition than those who leave because they're retired or they leave early because they don't like their, you know, the job you know, in the military. So they move into the, they move back, they move out of the military into the community. So, uh, but part of the people when they leave and they have medical conditions, oftentimes there's a, a mental health hit along with chronic health conditions. So a lot of times when people leave because say musculoskeletal injuries or other kind of uh, work-related you know, health uh, injuries, um, there is a, often a comorbidity of depression or anxiety that goes with that. So what are we experiencing? You know, so the, I guess the transition from military to civilian life can exacerbate some of those, uh, those mental health symptoms. But um, one of the biggest issues uh, for the for veterans anyway, around transition and that can cause, and, you, know, you know, a lot of poor mental health during the transition process is whether or not they have any ties to their, their local community before they leave. Some military people, their only, their, their only ties are within, with fellow military members. But some people actually get out and get involved in their communities that they're living in, even while they are serving. And we find that those people actually have a better transition because they're not leaving just a job and, you know, they're leaving just a job basically, whereas other people are leaving a job and a family all at the same time. And so it's, it's much more stressful, you know, for them. So yeah, it's, uh, it is, uh, it, it's an interesting area, but again, there's really not a lot of, um, of, of, re of systematic research, you know, on preventing mental health symptoms in veterans or first responders. I think as we talked about earlier, the biggest issue was like a lot of Martin Seligman's work coming out of the US, you know, uh, military and the road to mental readiness, which I talked about earlier, but again, none of that really works, so. Mm. So you, you, I guess you've, um, you conducted this research, you found that there just wasn't any evidence of um, efficacy in this population, um, yeah. what what's happened? Have researchers responded to that finding and and gone forth and conducted studies? Well, you, what what's happened since 2019? Well, first off, 2019 <laughs> then COVID came about, but that didn't stop people from still publishing. And there have been a couple of more couple new systematic reviews that have come out, especially in the area of early uh, of of early intervention work as opposed to prevention work, because uh, in first responders. What you end up getting is there's the mental health prevention element, but then there's also what do you do post-trauma exposure, you know, for first responders. That's that early intervention approach. So there's the critical incident stress management and there's the peer support. Those are the two main, you know, uh, you know, ways that first responder groups tend to address, you know, uh, work-related trauma. And uh, there wasn't, there were, there were a couple of systematic reviews, sorry, there were a couple of narrative reviews, and these are just uh, people putting together and summarizing the literature. And um, they were suggesting that, you know, CISM, critical incident stress management and peer support do not prevent future, uh, you know, mental health, you know, the onset of uh, more mental health symptoms after trauma exposure. And uh, so since, uh, and I reported that in my report, 
And since then, there have been a couple of systematic reviews and meta-analyses that have come out kind of still supporting, you know, that notion more rigorously, you know, with the science. In fact, it's gotten so bad for critical incident stress management that the UK National Institutes for Clinical Excellence actually say that CISM should not never be used as a way of preventing, you know, the onset of PTSD after trauma exposure. But it's again, it's still one of the most popular uh, forms of intervention that are out there. It's being used by everybody. Um, I recall incorrectly that there was some evidence to indicate that it was actually harmful. Back in the uh, in the early aughts, early mid aughts, um, yes. So the Mitchell model, there was uh, part of the Mitchell model that was shown to be um, to be harmful around, you know, uh, that could you know it could re-trigger you know, mm. somebody re-traumatize somebody by talking about uh, symptoms in a group. And I think that's, that's been addressed. So uh, the model we're having, we're seeing now has addressed those initial concerns, but we're still not finding any effects, you know. So it, it doesn't actively create harm, but it doesn't help either. No, no. The, the new model, from what I understand, uh, you know, uh, you know, doesn't, would, doesn't, would we doesn't call harm, that progress? <laughs> but, but doesn't help either. Well, yeah. What you end up, when the UK National Institutes for Clinical Excellence, Excellence came out and said, no, don't use this, there's no evidence for it, stop it. Um, a large group of first responders and the British Psychological Society wrote a position paper saying it may not have an impact on mental health, but it may um, be helpful in other ways because it provides social connection, it provides you know, one-on-one -on -one interaction. So there may be other benefits that are non-mental health related. I kind of, it, I, I don't know. I, I find that doesn't really sit well with me, but. Uh, yeah, put on a barbecue. Like, <laughs> so is it more of a, a matter of being seen to, to be doing something? Yeah. And if there's no other alternatives available, you know, yeah. people have been through a trauma and what are we doing as their employer? Nothing. Yeah. What did um what did Tony Lamontagne say about that? He said it's criminal. He reckons like if you are doing basically just individual level interventions and not considering the role of work, because yeah. then if yeah. it fails and the people feel oh it was my it's fault, my I fault. didn't yeah I didn't apply the skill correctly, you know. Yeah. That sounds like something Tony would say. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he was very fired up when we had he him on the was, podcast recently. He yeah. Yes. He, he, well, if he held back, I certainly didn't notice. <laughs> um. So. Has there been any movement forward on your findings, um, maybe sort of from from Movember's perspective or um, other areas? Yeah, yeah. So um, actually, before I get on that, let me just talk a little bit about some of my sort of general conclusions, because those conclusions really feed into what's happened next. Um, the, one of the first conclusions I said is, hey, there's too much focus on PTSD for veterans and first responders no one's really looking at the non-traumatic workplace stressors. And these are the standard kind of workplace stressors that are common in the general workforce, but they're also there in the veteran and first responder workforce as well. And some research that's come out of Canada suggests that these non-traumatic stressors are actually more strongly associated with poor mental health than trauma exposure is. So the point being there is that you think trauma exposure is the biggest problem, but really it's the organizational stressors or the non-traumatic operational stressors, things that come from, say, the job demand you know, control model or the job demand resources model, that kind of thing. And um, 
so there's there's that element, and I think that uh, that's you know something that um, that's kind of been built into some of the future work. There's also been I kind of we talked about the misuse of the phrase evidence based, and I'd like to see less use of uh, of evidence based and more evidence informed, or at least more education around the distinction between the two. And again, we talked about the poor evidence quality, but one of the biggest issues, especially from a Movember sense, is there's a lack of a gendered lens to these types of prevention programs. So veterans and first responders are you know, mostly male. The, within the ambulance community in a lot of these countries, they are more 50-50 of a good gender balance now, but the majority of the senior management are still male and the workplace culture is a very masculinist culture. So we are still dealing with you know, a, very much a men's health you know, issue in some respects. And uh, the programs were gender blind coming in. So they really didn't take into the fact that, you know, men may approach these types of programs differently. They may interact with these programs differently. There may be no reinforcement for actually, you know, engaging in the tools or using the tools that they're trying to get these people to teach. So there needs to be a more of a gendered approach that uh, basically adopts more of a positive psychology lens, you know, promoting these things, you know, uh, these types of uh, skills or, interventions, you know, in a way that is the way that speaks to men and enhances their likelihood of sticking with the program and engaging with what it is you're trying to teach them. So based on all of that, Movember came back and said, wow, this is not something that uh, we thought we, you know, we thought we were going to get Don to tell us which programs work best, but instead he's told us nothing really works. So um, in 2020, they issued two requests for proposals uh, for researchers to um, come back to them with programs that they think are promising, but they don't have any evidence for, and they want to actually test the evidence. They wanted these programs to be, uh, have to apply a gendered lens, so to maximize them for men. They wanted them to be evaluated effectively, so they brought in a third-party evaluation team, you know, to, uh, to come in and help these people do this. And um, yeah, and so they ended up having these two requests for proposals. We had a, um, a, a grant a review round this year and they recently announced that there are 15 proposals that they're funding over the next two years in eight countries. So uh, myself, I'm, I'm working with a colleague, Steve Robertson in the UK to uh, work with the teams to maximize the gender lens element. You know, and uh, yeah, so I think there's, there, hopefully you know, over the next two years, these teams will be able to at least Tell us a little bit more about what works and what doesn't. I'm hopeful that it it does work, but um, yeah, but science is really all about finding what doesn't work too. Well, I guess that's um, that's good news um, in that there's some proactive response to to your conclusions, and that um, you know that Movember is willing to actually say, right, well, this is a problem, and we're going to fund people to explore um, yeah. whether there are solutions currently available to this problem. Exactly. Now, one of the, uh, the key elements of uh, the call was basically saying that we know that, you know, um, one of the biggest causes of this are non-traumatic workplace stressors, and there are organizational factors that, you know, that, uh, that are the biggest, you know, uh, the biggest cause of these things. Uh, but unfortunately, only you know uh, one of the funded programs is actually looking at organizational culture and trying to change organizational structure. A lot of them are still focused on the individual. Um, 
that seems to be the current zeitgeist. I would have liked to have seen more programs, um, you know, uh, trying to change culture, but uh, I don't think we're, I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, but I'm so happy still to see the one that is working, uh, you know, at least one of them is working on changing culture. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, you know, it's much easier, isn't it, to, um, to measure change at an individual level um, and to look at outcomes at an individual level. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that fundamentally underpins why there's so much research focused on mental health at an individual level. Um, and yeah, it, it's looking at organizational factors and looking at organizational culture. Um, when you're then looking at, can we actually determine a causal relationship here? It becomes much more complex and much more difficult to make any, um, any of those sort of causal claims. It definitely, definitely. And we are doing some, uh, you know, some pre-post posts. We, there are some groups, uh, there's some projects that actually have com- you know, control groups built in. So there's some, you know, we're trying to maximize the quality of the study to be able to make as many causal statements as possible. And uh, who knows? Uh, I'm actually kind of hopeful that some of the projects may be able to indirectly influence organizational culture. You know, just yeah. through, just by the fact that it's happening, by the fact that it's being funded by an external organization, that there's uh, that there's interest and that there's awareness that um, that individuals don't work you know in a vacuum mm. and uh, that they are influenced by the way the culture uh, supports things like overwork and uh, lack of job control and lack of support and social support within the, the work context and uh, reduction of resources. The phrase "do more with less" is permanently infused in my brain, and, and I get anger every time I hear it. So, uh. mm. um, and I, I suppose the other the other positive there is that if you you know even if it's only one study, if it does have a really good methodology, um, then that shows other researchers that you know here's a here's a methodology that you can now use um, to conduct research in this way. Um, so that's that's a positive step as well. Exactly. But again, I would argue, here's the methodology that you can use that appears to work, but please validate it in your context. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And that can be the, that can be a problem because as you were saying earlier, Joelle, a lot of organizations, they don't have the skill to effectively assess these types of prevention programs to determine, to separate out the BS from, you know, the scientific actual, the actual scientific evidence. And at the same time, a lot of them don't have the expertise to actually, you know, assess the efficacy or the effectiveness of a program, you know, that is being implemented. Oftentimes they'll just use satisfaction with the program as a proxy. And as we know, satisfaction has zero correlation with whether or not the program works. It actually is correlated with whether or not people stay, you know, for the entire length of the program, but they got, they got to like it if they're going to stay, but uh, it doesn't really have any impact on whether it works for the people who do stay. Yeah, a couple of things you mentioned there, Don, that I just wanted to point out is one regarding um, this fascination with PTSD and first responders and, and veterans, uh, whereas it's often the normal day, everyday organizational factors that are contributing yeah. to you know poor mental health outcomes. And that's something that has been mentioned. I think Carla Kapanecki was one of the first to mention it very early on in the podcast. Yeah, we've had a, a few. So Nicholas Wisen as well was talking yeah. about it. So we've had, yeah, we've had a few. Um, making that same comment, um, Dia Day as well, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Nicholas, you get along well with. He's uh, from Sweden and he's done a lot of work <laughs> in military psychology. So, um, uh, but the, yeah, it's it seems if you were to do a desktop review 
um, this would be a limitation because mm. you would go, well, as an industry, we need to be worried about PTSD and you're not really worried about your factors um, and not thinking about your context. And I think that's why the first content clause of ISO 45003 is understand your organization's context, yeah. um, which is uh, an important step and, and one that is often skipped, I think, when people want to just get straight into the, the fun bits. Yeah, and I think it's sort of the the consistent message that we've heard from all of these guests is that people self-select into those roles knowing that they're going to be exposed to these types of hazards. So they know that they're going to witness trauma. They know that they're going to be, you know, uh, listening to people, um, you know, sharing the worst experiences in their lives, um, you know, all of these types of things. So they they go in expecting that and being prepared for that. But what they maybe don't expect is that they've just got a real jerk for a boss and the bureaucracy is just unbelievably complex and difficult to get anything done and there's no real pr- career progression and I have to work all of this extra overtime without pay and, all you know, all of those, the, the minutiae of organisational life um, is, is the thing that gets them. Yeah. Well, just to kind of bring it back to Australia, uh, one, of the, one of the reports I read during uh, when I was reading up for my report came from uh, Phoenix you know, in Australia, and uh, they did a, a review for the uh, the Australian National Police, and uh, basically they wanted to know, you know, how do we how do we manage, you know, workplace stress, you know, kind of thing, and um, basically they came in and they said you need to actually address the structural elements and the non traumatic elements, you know, uh, in the workplace, and that would be your biggest bang for your buck, and they actually came back with evidence. They used uh, two questionnaires that I created about 15 years ago called the Operational Police Stress Questionnaire and the Organizational Police Stress Questionnaire. So they measure non-traumatic operational and organizational stressors in police, but they've been used more broadly for fire, ambulance, and other public safety uh, groups as well. And they showed how high these these stressors were. And uh, unfortunately, the AMP came back with, "Oh, let's bring in road to mental readiness," <laughs> you know, and <laughs> instead of instead of addressing any of the structural elements, uh, you know. So, but uh, yeah, it's it's a problem. Yeah, uh, and that measuring, you know, successfulness of interventions in in your organization when you bring something in. Um, I think that's something where, again, um, the I think the majority, maybe at least half of our listenership is probably from the health and safety profession. And I think that's something that they are really qualified to do or this risk management stuff. We identify hazards, we assess risk, we control risk, and then we monitor to see if our controls are effective or not. And if they're not, we go back to what we're doing and going, okay, what, what wasn't working? How do we do it again? And then monitor and keep reviewing and improving. So taking that scientific approach and applying it within your, in your organization, rather than just purely re- relying on evidence that was taken maybe out of context or from, um, you know, something that didn't have relevance to your context. Yeah. I think sometimes the organization where they need the help is in identifying what the, what the appropriate outcomes are and, um, you know, what things to measure, because one of the, the elements, especially from a gendered lens, is there are some organizations that just use EAP data to measure the effectiveness mm. of uh, prevention programs. And EAP data is a very poor proxy, you know, uh, for that, especially for men, because men don't use EAP. You know, I think the, the data I saw that men use EAP about half to half the time or, you know, 
half as much as women do is what yep. I want to say. And, you know, women, I think only use it maybe, I think 27% of the time or something like that. So the data I, sh I saw were, were not very promising. Yeah. I actually saw some data um, just in the past week from um, like uh, counseling phone, like I can't remember which uh, organization it was, but it was about that. I, I did note that women seem to be calling these helplines probably twice as frequently as what men did. Um, yeah. And so, like you say, you're going to get a, a skewed uh, mm -hmm. view of what are the main issues, unless they're separating, separating out male and female issues, which they don't typically do. It's generally all clustered into one bucket. Um, and generally, the, um, the utilization rate for these services is very low anyway. We're talking about maybe one in 20 people actually using them. Yeah. It's reactive. It's not preventative. Um, and then, yeah. And then do the people on the other end of that phone, do they know how to, uh, how to cope or deal with male callers? Uh, the kids help phone in Canada is a, uh, is a distress call line, you know, for, uh, for kids and teens. And um, they said that the majority of the people who call were women, but when they actually trained up and developed a, a call, separate call line for boys, they started getting tons, but they actually had to train their staff, you know, you know how to how to work more effectively with with boys, because it was it was a different skill set, you know, than yeah. it was working with girls. Yeah, and even just a language, I think that boys and men use rather than um, you know compared yes. to women, had a really interesting conversation, which led to a change in one of our uh, wellbeing check-in tools, um, with a school psychologist who was at an all boys school, and um, she said, oh. The boys often don't, you know, say they're upset or stressed. They say they're angry. Yeah. Um, and so what we did was actually implement an angry uh, uh, mood or emoji, if you like, into our wellbeing check-in um, yeah. for specifically to target boys and kind of had it ranked at the same level as, you know, if a, someone was to say they were stressed. So stressed or angry, kind of interchangeable. They're obviously having a negative impact on their mood or wellbeing. Um, but, yeah, just to make sure that it was kind of something that men could associate with more readily, if you like. Funnily enough, anger is, uh, is the emotion that men and boys get rewarded for the most. <laughs> yeah. So in other words, if they display a lot of other types of emotions, they can be shamed for that. But if yep. they display anger, everybody seems to be okay with that. And yeah, like on the sporting yeah. field, get fired up, you know? You yeah, know. exactly. Whereas ironically, women are punished for displaying anger, especially in the workplace. Oh, Joelle, you'd be stuffed. Like, <laughs> she's always angry the, at me. The, the key, Don, is to take it further. <laughs> so people are too afraid to, um, to approach you about your anger issues. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we've kind of actually touched on um, this uh, individual level interventions versus systemic interventions. Um, would Obviously, you said only one out of the 15 funded projects focused more on organisational change rather than right. individual level. Um, what are some ways maybe that researchers may be able to start building in more systemic or um, organisational level interventions, do you think? Well, I think this is tough because there is a belief within uh, the health promotion field that, um, that you can't, you have to have to dumb down your intervention program to work with an organization. In other words, that an organization doesn't want your health promotion program. They want a fraction of it instead. They, no, they don't want the whole thing. Just, you know, you, you're proposing an hour intervention. They only want 15 minutes because everybody's time is precious. But that's not really the case because there are hundreds of studies out there 
where people have taken and they've done really good, strong uh, RCTs in organizations. They've been able to work with organizations. So I think one of the biggest problems out there that has to be overcome is this belief that organizations are unwilling to actually implement a full program. And um, I think once you can kind of get over that, then maybe there might be ways of working with organizations to adjust and change their, um, their organizational structure. One of the studies that I reviewed in my burnout webinar last week was really interesting. It uh, looked at interventions for reducing burnout in the workplace. And this one systematic review compared individual level uh, you know, strategies, in other words, CBT, you know, um, you know, uh, increasing job skills, that kind of thing, versus organizational you know, uh, changes. In other words, reducing you know, uh, work time to a much, something that's much more manageable, increasing you know, uh, supervision and you know, increasing job control. And what they found was that the individual interventions didn't work at all. Whereas the interventions that actually did target the organization, they worked a lot, they worked fairly well. So um, that just goes to show that organizations are willing to change. Mm. That it, but the thing is that I think researchers and uh, intervention specialists, they can't go in with the attitude that the organizations won't do it. They have to go in with the organization that how do we get these, how do we get these organizations to do this in a way that is meaningful and robust, that leads to a meaningful and robust evaluation. And if one organization doesn't want to do it, then let's try another organization, you know, and because it's, it's that or, if the organization doesn't want to do it, they really don't care about mm -hmm. their individuals you know, or, you know, their individuals well-being. They're just there to check the check the tick box, you know, on yeah. uh, the program that could that sounds harsh. But, uh, you know, I've been doing this for, for a while. And I think that that's probably at least a fair, fairly fair assessment. Yeah, I'd say it's probably 50-50. There are some that are just ignorant and don't realize and they've been marketed too well and they're sold a flashy program that is claiming that will have an impact. Um, and then the others probably, like you say, they just want to do something that's perceived as warm and fuzzy um, and don't really care whether it works or not. Kind of like the whole system thing, like you, you mentioned, like even though it was suggested this has no effect, you get these yeah. people putting out position papers saying, no, it's still better than nothing. And uh, I see, um, I see organizations uh, that are, you know, kind of still, you know, adopting and, you know, this is a model and uh, I keep wanting to, you know, I, I, of course, I don't have any hair left to pull, but uh, <laughs> I pull out my hair, you know, just uh, with fr in frustration. It's just kind of like, are these people being marketed to or do they not know the literature or is it just because a lot of the literature has been, you know, you know, maybe not system systematically put together, you know, until just recently. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's interesting what you pulled out from you, that burnout um, uh, lecture that you gave the other day. Uh, I know we talked to Tony LaMontagna about his 2007 article, which was a systematic review of uh, workplace mental health interventions from 1990 to 2005. Yeah. Um, and he came up with the same conclusions back then. We did prompt yeah. him saying, hey, it's you due for your next 15 year systematic <laughs> review. Apparently he's got no time for that. So. <laughs> Well, there was actually a really good one by Van Hove in, I think, 2016 um, that, uh, that did a, a good job. It kind of built on, you know, on that original, you know, um, thing. But, yeah, no, Tony's, Tony's work, especially, you know, the work, you know, that he was doing with his, uh, his colleague on suicide prevention programs in the workplace. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a powerhouse, that's for sure. Yeah. 
Um, so something that I wanted to ask you about, um, I've noticed um, workplace initiatives that are being called preventative, um, but they're really actually early intervention. Yep. Um, can you maybe for our listeners explain what the difference is between those two types of interventions? Okay. Preventative uh, programs are usually put in place in, in a general workplace setting um, in a manner the goal is to prevent um, is to prevent the onset of poor mental health symptoms. And but early intervention is usually applied in workplaces uh, that are usually experience a lot of uh, workplace trauma or trauma exposure in the workplace. Uh, ambulance workers, firefighters, police, um, you know, search and rescue uh, individuals, that those kinds of people, military. And the goal there is to prevent the onset of PTSD or depression, anxiety symptoms after exposure to trauma. So one is the prevention is more generic. The early intervention is more specifically tied to trauma exposure. Although funnily enough, um, I've talked to a colleague and, this, and in fact, I even wrote this you know, in, my, uh, in my report, my scoping review. And that is that when you're dealing with first responders and military personnel, Oftentimes, there's no distinction between prevention and early intervention unless you get them and unless you teach them the prevention programming in basic training or in the, in the training elements of the program. Because first responders are exposed to so many potentially traumatic situations. Carlton et al. Uh, in Canada did a national survey of over 6,000 first responders in Canada. And they've been, we've been publishing and they've been publishing a number of reports you know, on that since 2018. And um, I think I did the math uh, for, um, you know, for in my scoping review. And I think that um, the number of uh, potentially traumatic events that individual uh, first responders might experience within, I think, five years of uh, joining, you know, their uh, their occupation, uh, is in the hundreds. So, you know, where do you? Because they report approximately eleven or more than eleven a year. So, um, over five, over ten years, that would be over one hundred and twenty or so. So, um, and that's that was because that was the cutoff. the The cutoff was eleven plus, you know, on the questionnaire. <laughs> So we, they didn't actually state how many, they just stated, well, well yeah, so it could be 11, it could be 15, it could be 20, you know, we don't know. But uh, they, there is that notion of multiple you know, trauma exposure and it starts pretty much from day one you know, on the job for a lot of first responders, so especially ambulance uh, personnel. And um, so is, is there actual true prevention programming for first responder personnel, but there probably is more prevent, you know, it's more of an accurate, you probably don't do early intervention in the non first responder workplace, you do mostly prevention, you know, training program. Although I think we do, we may need to actually build in the early intervention work more broadly. Uh, for example, there's vicarious trauma experience by uh, court reporters, for example, mm -hmm. um, and from uh, communications personnel um, in, um, who, who take 911 calls in Canada. I don't know what the, what the three digit number in Australia is at 999 or 000. Triple zero. And um, I remember just as, as an, on, in an anecdote, um, I was, uh, Canada introduced a third location decompression process for people coming back from Afghanistan um, on deployment in the, uh, the mid-aughts. 
and they came through Cyprus and they had a five day decompression process before they got home. And uh, I was doing some research uh, with some colleagues evaluating what people thought of that. It really wasn't effectiveness is what do they think of it. And um, I was overseeing an interview that was being done by my contractors who was my main contractor was a former general. So he, he knew the context. Uh, and we were interviewing what was called forward. I can't remember the exact name of the job description, but this is the person who was on the radio to the forward uh, you know, people in the, in the field. They were calling in airstrikes because they were under attack. These people heard everything that went on at the other end of, uh, of that call. And, um, and they were traumatized by it. They never left the base. They never saw any, any combat, but they heard it. And, uh, and the level of trauma you know, and, uh, and vicarious trauma you know, in them you know, can be quite high. So that's just an example of vicarious trauma, how we need to maybe broaden out the early intervention you know, focus uh, maybe to a broader number of, uh, of occupations. Mm. I think like outside of the first responder space as well, I see um, sort of the mental health first aid um, often pitched as a pre- preventative approach, but it really is an early intervention approach there as well. It's, you know, identifying signs and symptoms in your colleagues and approaching them and referring them. But there are two systematic reviews of mental health first aid and they do not improve the mental health of the people who are giving it or the people who is being given to. So to what extent it improves the confidence of the people giving the mental health first aid to talk about mental health first aid. So I guess it gets to that question around, are you okay? You know, it's like, you can ask it, but are you comfortable dealing with what comes next? Mm -hmm. If the answer is no. And uh, mental health first aid does give people that confidence but it doesn't have any impact on the mental health of the people giving it or the people it's being addressed to. So um, if it is a, you know, a, you know, a form of either prevention or early intervention, you know, the evidence right now is suggesting it's not all that effective. Yeah. Well, same, oh, sorry, Don. I was going to say same with programs that are designed around stigma reduction. So a lot of mental health programs are designed to reduce the stigma of mental self of mental health that's directed towards the self. So mental mental health self stigma. Uh, the goal is that, or the assumption is that, if you reduce mental health self stigma, then you'll increase the likelihood that somebody will seek treatment when they are experiencing uh, mental health problems. But that's built on the assumption that there's actually a relationship between mental health self stigma and treatment seeking in the first place, but there isn't. There is a small correlation between mental health self-stigma and intentions to seek treatment, but there's a zero correlation between mental health self-stigma and actual treatment-seeking behavior. So sometimes you have to be very careful about you know, the, the program that, uh, that you're putting in place to make sure that it is built on a firm assumption rather than a perceived assumption. Yeah, really interesting. Um, one, one thing you were mentioning there before, Don, is with defense personnel, first responders, trauma is kind of built into the job. Um, yeah. And so people go into those jobs expecting it. Um, but is there any any way then that we can actually prevent trauma um, uh, or that, you know, the mental health outcomes associated with that exposure to trauma? I don't think you can prevent the trauma per se. You know, um, but I think what you can do is uh, because you're not going to be able to you're not going to be able to prevent the exposure. 
Yeah. You know, the exposure is what is element is what is elementary to, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, to the trauma. So, um, you can't prevent the exposure, but what you can do is you can help downstream. So you can introduce perhaps like there is uh, there are some programs out there uh, where people can uh, you can you know you can go to to talk. It's kind of like a buddy system, you know, where you can talk to people. Um, you know, about mental health. They've got a little bit of, of uh, mental health kind of first aid, but it's not quite mental health first aid training. And they can advise you on who to, in other words, they're a conduit to get you into treatment. And, uh, and so that helps. So if you can provide some kind of way to ease, you know, uh, you know the, um, the people who are experiencing problems into getting help, then that's always, you know, a, you know sort of a good way to go. Um, the other thing that you can do is um, you can find some way to, you know, kind of educate them around the notion that mental health is not a category. It's not a categorical distinction. I either have it or I don't. That is a continuum. And to recognize the symptoms, you know, along the continuum. The one element of the road to mental readiness that I, that I really do like, and a lot of people have liked, has been adopted by a number of different uh, organizations is the mental health continuum model, which I think the Canadian Armed Forces borrowed from the, uh, the US, uh, you know, I think it was from the, uh, the Marines. And uh, so what you end up doing is you end up highlighting what it feels like to be green, yellow, you know, um, I think it was a green, yellow, then a light red, then a dark red, you know, kind of thing. So as you go from that, that green is good, you know, to red is bad, red stop. Um, and if you can teach people about that. But one of the other things I heard um, is uh, you know when I was talking to my subject matter experts for my report, is that when people are experiencing problems, there often aren't enough mental health professionals to go around. There aren't there isn't easy access to them, and for those who are in serious trouble, there aren't any beds available you know for them within a, the medical system, or they're very difficult to find. So, I think there are multiple you know, Knowing that people are going to be experiencing, or some are going to be experiencing, you know, um, you know, some adverse symptoms. You know, not all people experience PTSD who are exposed to trauma. Only some do. And if you do, you know, get help. How do we get you into help as fast as possible? How do we break down some of the stigma? Although I know that's not a uh, that's not linked to treatment seeking, but on your own, but you may be able to be pushed into it a little bit more or prodded, pushed, prodded, helped, you know, by peers and then making sure there's actual support. A lot of my clinicians basically say, we keep talking about getting people into a, you know, a good mental health, you know, uh, into, into a mental health, into an office, you know, where they can talk to a mental health professional, but there aren't enough mental health professionals out there, you know, and so who controls that, you know, and, uh, and why? Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a difficult um, topic as you suggest to uh yeah given the inherent trauma that people are going to be exposed to how do you actually prevent the adverse reactions and taking into account individual differences i guess yeah. i think one of the big things is just letting people know that just because you are exposed to a trauma doesn't mean you're going to get ptsd there are some people out there touting the notion that oh you're a, you're an ambulance you know uh paramedic you will get ptsd and that's not the case uh but then there's the other notion out there that um you know, I'm resilient, you know, like I'm strong. You know, this is kind of a male thing as well. I'm tough. You know, uh, you know, the, the whole notion of male stoicism, I, I can deal with whatever crap you pull, you know, 
at me. Um, and then, you know, it's like then not quite realizing, you know, when, you know, when the, the mask you're wearing is exhausting you. Like, you know, Zach Seidler, you know, did a wonderful systematic review of masculinity and depression. And he showed that, you know, men really won't seek treatment until every other resource they've, that they have at their disposal is exhausted. So, and they themselves are emotionally and physically exhausted. Mm. So, yeah. So we've, we've talked a lot about um, different elements of um, sort of mental health um, initiatives or strategies um, in the workplace. Do you have a view on um, what you feel is missing at the moment um, in particular in particular from a prevention perspective um, in the workplace? What is missing? <sighs> you know, my biggest, I think my biggest issue in terms of what I'm thinking about is really gets back to the, some of the main observations I made in my, in my report. An overemphasis on the individual, you know, less focus on the organizational causes. We know we've got decades of research, longitudinal research that show that these organizational factors cause poor mental health in workers, yet they're not really doing very much you know, about any of that. So let's stop blaming, because in essence, so that's what this does. This puts a, a, the burden, it blames the, you know, the worker for things that are out of their control. They don't control their, uh, the level of job demand. They don't control the level of control they have over how they do their job or the support they get. So you have to stop blaming the individual for, uh, you know, for their poor mental health. Uh, there was, uh, I posted something on LinkedIn recently. Uh, it, was an, it, was a, it was a journal piece, not a, not a scientific article, but it was basically saying that when organizations implement uh, burnout interventions, it doesn't lead to better or reduced burnout. It leads to anger and cynicism within the staff because they see it as a token, uh, as a token implementation. So, you know, yeah, so, so stop, stop focusing on the individual. Stop, if, if you're for first responder and, uh, and military veterans, stop focusing solely on, um, you know, on PTSD, you know, as the main, you know, interest. And, you know, evaluate your findings in a robust manner. You know, use a gendered lens. I know we didn't mention fidelity, but you have to be, you have to implement fidelity, you know, across any intervention program. I've, I've seen programs where the instructors kind of, they kind of go way off book. And uh, there was a study that looked at fidelity of the, in the Road to Mental Readiness program in recruits in Canada, military recruits. And uh, the author, Denise Fricatolo, found that sessions where there were no fidelity checks actually had negative outcomes for, uh, the, for the students taking. In other words, the negative outcome there was they left, they left basic training at a higher rate. Now, did they flunk out? Did they decide to leave? We don't know. You know did the instructors scare them? I, we don't know. But uh, they definitely weren't building any sense of you know, positive mental health. You know, or maybe they were by, by saying, this isn't for me, I'm leaving. I don't know. But fidelity check was a big issue. And there's a lot of fidelity checks are not very popular in, uh, in program implementation or program development or program implementation. And we really need to make sure that these are manualized programs. They need to be given the same way so that they can generalize across different organizations. Mm. 
So to follow on from that, what, what advice would you give to organisations who are wanting to improve their approach to psychological health and safety management? Oh, the biggest one is don't buy the marketing, buy the science. And if you don't know how to buy the science, if you don't, if you don't understand the science, spend some money to bring in an advisor who's, who can do that work for you. And I guess the other thing is, and it's most likely the organizational, the organizational factors that are the biggest culprit. So be willing to find new ways to work in your organization. You know, the assumption that everything, this is the way we've always done it, is not a good excuse, you know, for, for how we move forward. Because we've known for decades that these are causal factors in poor worker mental health. We know this. So um, let's find ways to, uh, to change the program. Like I sit back and I was thinking recently, you know, thinking back to Dickens, you know, seven, work, seven day work weeks or six day work weeks, 12 to 14 hours a day, you know, for minimum wage, you know, um, we're now down to, for a lot of people, five days, you know, a week, 40 hours a week. Some people, you know, take extra pride in working, you know, more, but even in those organizations, like in Canada, doctors no longer are allowed to work you know, more than a certain set number of hours, you know, because of mistakes, you know, uh, and that has an impact on both patient, but also the doctors themselves. So let's, uh, let's start changing the workplace for everybody else as well. And let's start treating mental health as the, the same way we treat, you know, physical safety in the workplace. Yeah, no, there's some really good thoughts. Actually, so while not, we're on the... cohesive at all. But... <laughs> While we're on those uh, those thoughts, um, we asked the same question of all the guests on on the podcast. Putting on your uh, your looking looking into the future, looking into your crystal ball. What are your hopes for the future of workplace mental health? I think my biggest hope is that organisations get the message that the problems are not in the employees, the problems are in the, in the organization. I think if we can get away from, you know, uh, programs that are employee-centric to programs that are organization-centric and try and uh, redo the way work is done. I, I think we'd be, that, that for me is, I think, you know, if we can get more and more organizations doing that, then I think that, uh, that that would be an excellent, you know, first step. But I don't know how or when. Maybe now, if you know, like in this day and age, with the quote unquote, the, you know, the great what they call the great resignation, you know, that's or whatever it is, it's supposed to be happening. Um, I know there are a number of people out there who they now kind of see the light and they're finding alternate ways of making an income without having to work within a setting or a context or a workplace um, that. Um, is in essence harming their mental health. And there are a bit more, there, there are a lot of people who, there are a lot more people who are aware of that. And I think who are trying to find ways to find alternate methods of working. And so organizations may be forced into change or um, they may want to, you know, take the lead and do it themselves. I, either way, you know, I, yeah. uh, my goal is to reduce, my goal is really, you know, to improve the mental health of, you know, of all workers that are out there, no matter what their occupation, whether it's the barista serving me my coffee, you know, or uh, the ambulance driver who is picking me up to take me to the hospital when I'm sick. Yeah, 
Now, I think that's, uh, you've just summed up beautifully why we wanted you on the podcast, um, Don. Um, you know, we're very much around, you know, the shared responsibility for workplace mental health, but the piece that's missing is the employer's responsibility more often than not. Um, and so we really do hope that, you know, what you envisage comes true and, and hopefully that the three of us and other colleagues who are working in the industry can all have that impact and direct our companies in the right way. I would hope so. I got my fingers crossed, but uh, I'm, I have to admit, you know, working in this field has kind of made me a little bit of a pessimist, but uh, I'm happy to be proven wrong. Yeah, well, you're dealing with at least one violent optimist in the room, so we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get there done. But that's him, not me. <laughs> um, do you have some words, words of advice for our listeners who want to work in the field of, uh, of psych health and safety? Oh, well, my, my background is in psychology. So the area that, uh, that I think is probably most relevant from my background is what's called um, occupational you know, health psychology. And uh, it's a growing field. There's a large number of people doing occupational health psych in, uh, in North America and in Europe. Uh, I don't know too much about the occupational health psych, you know, field in, uh, in Australia, though. And, uh, but I think that uh, those who are interested in, in working in that area from the psychological focus, that's kind of the area that, that I think has the most uh, direct implication. Uh, or the most direct effect, you know, uh, it'll teach people, you know, basically everything they need to know about um, improving, you know, psychological health and safety in the workplace. But there are other avenues for that. So uh, unfortunately, I don't really know too much about the training of people who work in HR or in, uh, in occupational health in general, uh, to just to know a background in occupational health psychology will give everybody a good training in both methods, but also measurement, especially in the mental health field. Because what I find is that uh, measurement is one of the key elements, especially outcome measurement and uh, mental health measurement. So you need a firm understanding of how measures are developed and validated. And, uh, and that's often a weakness, I find, you know, in some respects. People are more likely to want to create their own outcome measure as opposed to using a validated you know, measure. You know. So, anyway. Wonderful. Good advice. Thank you. Well, Don, it's been a fascinating and uh, probably, yeah, like Joelle mentioned earlier, a bit of a geek out, nerd out yeah. um, <laughs> with you. Um, I think uh, the timing of this is probably going to be similar to Tony Lamontagne's, uh, one of our longer episodes, but uh, really well worth it given the depth that we're able to go to into the topic. Well, I've enjoyed it and hopefully everybody else will. Sometimes I can get on a high horse and, uh, you know, and uh, sound kind of preachy. Hopefully that didn't happen here. So I uh, didn't sound preachy. Um, and if you were preaching, you're probably preaching to the converted if they're listening yeah. to our podcast anyway. So <laughs> there would well, have been some hallelujahs coming, coming well, from yeah. people's cars as a commuting to and from work. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much, Don. And uh, my you know, pleasure. We, we look forward to keeping in touch with you over uh, LinkedIn. Yes, definitely. Please do. I always enjoy chatting with both of you. Yeah. So um, that brings us to the end of the episode. Listeners, don't forget you can watch the YouTube video if you'd like to do that um, on the Flourish DX YouTube page. And we'll definitely be pulling out a couple of clips from this as well to share on the Flourish DX LinkedIn page. Uh, while you're over on LinkedIn, um, you will see Don, myself, Joel there quite a bit. You know, feel free to engage and, and connect with us if you want to continue the conversation on that medium. So thanks a lot again, listeners. We'll catch you next episode. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.